This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 333rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an actor who has been at the center of seven of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters of not only the past decade, but ever, playing Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America, in Marvel's Captain America The First Avenger in 2011, The Avengers in 2012, Captain America The Winter Soldier in 2014, Avengers Age of Ultron in 2015, Captain America Civil War in 2016, Avengers Infinity War in 2018, and Avengers Endgame in 2019. But before, during, and after his time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he has also done all sorts of other interesting and impressive work. In films like Danny Boyle's Sunshine in 2007, the brothers Adam and Mark Casson's Puncture in 2011, and Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer in 2013, on Broadway in a revival of Kenneth Lonergan's Lobby Hero in 2018, and this year on Apple TV Plus's limited series Defending Jacob, on which he plays an assistant district attorney who winds up on a case that leads him a bit too close to home for comfort. I'm talking, of course, about Chris Evans. Over the course of our conversation, the 38-year-old and I discussed his roots in the theater, the panic attacks that almost made him abandon his film career in its infancy, why he said no to the part of Captain America many times before he finally said yes, why defending Jacob is just the sort of project he's been longing to be a part of for years, plus much more. And so, with thanks to Chris, and without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. Absolutely. We always begin in this Corona era with just the obvious question, where are you and how are you doing? Yeah, I'm hanging in there. I mean, it's, uh, you know, at my house, it's, uh, it's, it's been, um, you know, it's, it's tough to, to, to say that it's been uh, pleasant because I know how tricky it is for so many people, but I, I'm a real homebody anyway, and I'm, I'm a real introvert. So this is, you know, this is not too dissimilar to what my normal life is like, but, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's tough because I'm also a real news junkie and, you, you can't quite separate your own experience from the experience everyone else is having. Absolutely. Well, focusing now on your story, which I've been having a lot of fun reading up on for the last week. Uh, oh, no. I, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> let's go back to the beginning. Just for folks who may not know, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Sure. I was born in Boston, Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I grew up, uh, I started out, I lived in Framingham, a small town uh, mm-hmm. outside of Boston for about 10 years, and then uh, Sudbury, uh, another small town, uh, through, through the graduation of high school. And my, my father was a dentist, and my mother, my mother was, was a homemaker for a long time. And then uh, somewhere around, I think I was maybe 16, the woman who ran the local youth theater that I, that I 
I did a lot of shows uh, at uh, my, retired, and uh, and my mother got the job, so now she she runs that theater. So I want to focus on youth theater, obviously, because it sounds like that's where it all got started for you. How yeah. did you? Was that just sort of your parents sticking you in an after school activity or, or something, as as parents often do, or was it you asking specifically to try that? No, I think I think the credit would have to go to my older sister. You know, I'm, I'm one of four kids, uh, so everyone had their own. Uh, activities and hobbies and and my older sister started doing plays when I was I think I was maybe 10 or 11 uh, and so we all started as families going to see her shows and it just it would just look like a great time and and she was so fantastic in them and uh, very quickly my younger siblings and I said I think I think we you know sign us up uh, and and yeah it just we just loved it we just fell in love with it instantly I was reading about things that you've said you did through that program. I think at 13, there's like a two man play at 16, another, it just, it sounds like it was a big part of your identity in probably junior high school and high school. Can you talk about, you know, if we were to grab somebody who went to school with you back then and say, what was Chris like, what would they remember? Uh, they would say a theater dork, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I was a very, very stereotypical theater kid, you know, I, I and you can really, you can recognize them too. Whenever I meet one, I'm like, yep, <laughs> I know you. And then I think they see right through me too. Yeah. I was just one of those kids. I mean, I, I did it year round. I was doing the plays that the school offered. I did after school community theater. I did summer acting camps. <laughs> so yeah, it was just a year round thing. And and like I said, I was lucky. All my siblings were into it. So it was a very, very theater-based household. So it sounds like a, a moment comes along where somebody, I I guess maybe a, a friend who was a professional actor or something, says to you, you know, if you're serious about this, you need to probably try to get an agent. But being in Massachusetts, most of the agents are, I know there is, there's some great casting agencies sure. there. But how does that advice lead you to New York? Sure. Uh, yeah, it was it was a friend. It was a family friend who was a, an actor in New York. And uh, and it was around sophomore year that I started doing a little less. Uh, you know, when you're young, you're doing theater. It's it's, you know, Guys and Dolls and, you know, South Pacific and things like that. And then, then you know, somewhere around my teens, you get afforded the opportunity to do some more straight plays. And and uh, and, and I, I started getting a little more excited about the subtlety of, of acting and and decided I think it's what I want to pursue. Uh, and so I ended up asking this one guy, this this family friend, what what's what's the move? What should I do? And he said, well, you need an agent. You, you know, if, if you really want to do this, the agents get you the auditions and agents are in New York. So uh, it was just kind of, uh, it just made logical sense to me to, to try and spend some time in the city. And, and again, logic led me to believe that if I want to interact, if I want to get an agent, I got to make some friends with agents. Um, and, and, and working at a casting office seemed like the best opportunity to reach a broad, a broad spectrum of agents. So, so um, I ended up getting, I think they still make them, these things called the Ross Reports. They're this, you know, little booklet of all the all the agents, all the casting directors in L.A. and New York. So I got them and I, it was a list of all the, the New York casting offices. And I wrote this long letter. I need to interrupt you here for a second because you were good enough to share this letter on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, I'm going <laughs> to just because I actually think it's pretty 
impressive for a kid to have written this. So I'm going to take the liberty, if I can, of just okay. quickly reading it. Uh, this is March 28, 1998. Um, to whom it may concern, I am writing this letter to introduce myself to you and to make myself available to your firm for possible internship work during the summer of 1998. My name is Christopher Evans, and I am a high school junior with an intense passion for theater. I have been very actively involved in theater for seven years and have chosen to spend the summer of 1998 taking acting classes on Saturdays at the Lee Strasberg Institute in New York City. Since my weekdays will be open, I was hoping to arrange an internship in the city, allowing someone to take advantage of a hardworking individual like me in exchange for a tremendous opportunity to be exposed to the business side of theater. I have enclosed the <laughs> resume for your review. I would greatly welcome any input you might have. I am currently planning on visiting New York City during the week of April 20th to April 26th. I could make myself available to you then or at any time you wish should an interview be desired. Thank you very much for your interest and for taking the time to look at this. Close quote. I think that's very impressive. And it did lead to something. It did. Yeah, yeah, it did. So funny. I enclosed a resume. What was on that resume? <laughs> it was like guys and dolls. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it, at the time, it felt to me like, why not? Who wouldn't? You know, I'm, I'm offering just, you know, I'll get you coffee. Yeah. Um, and a couple places did did respond and God, I remember those phone calls so vividly, you know, getting back when landlines were yes. a thing. And, you know, and then the landline rang and my mother said, Chris, there's someone on the phone for you. They say they were from New York. Oh, my God. And I ended up I, I went to New York. So I got I got two internships initially. Um, and I, I said, well, why not try and, you know, expand my experience? So I, I did, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at one place, Tuesday, Thursday at another and very quickly, I recognized one place was offering me much more opportunity on phones and things like that, while the other really was relegated to filing headshots. So I, I ended up just switching to that one internship. And, and over the summer, you know, that was my job. I was actually, it was, the, it was the casting office for Spin City, back when Michael J. Fox was doing it. Bonnie Finnegan, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I just, you know, I'd come in on a Monday and we, we, they would have released a breakdown of, of that week's casting off opportunities. And you come in at these huge envelopes, all these submissions, and I would set up actors to come in and audition. Um, but I was, you know, on the phone with agents all the time, all the time agents. And so by the end of the summer, I had a little, I had a little notepad that I kept of, of the nice agents, the ones that were very friendly to me. And, and at the end of the summer, I just kind of shot my shot and said, listen, uh, I know summer's coming to an end. I'm, I'm just Chris and Bonnie's office to you, but uh, I'm an actor. Uh, and I would really love just five minutes if I could come down and audition. And so, you know, I think just I, I think just to be kind, a couple places were like, yeah, sure, come on down. And uh, and luckily, you know, one of them signed me and said, yeah, let's do this. Uh, you know, what's your schedule? And I said, well, I got to go back and finish high school because you were I, 16 I right i mean yeah yeah well i just turned 17 just yeah 17, but i was okay. i was i was going into my senior year and so they said uh they said okay well well you got to get back as soon as you can pilot season starts in january so i i went back to high school and i doubled in a few classes and uh and and i graduated early in january and went back to new york and i actually got the same internship um <laughs> but i was auditioning and you know and i and i was very lucky i got a pilot uh that pilot season that that got picked up and uh, only ran for a few episodes, but that got me to LA and, you know, the, the rest, you know, went from there. Yeah. So that was just to remind people who might've uh, might remember the show that was opposite sex on Fox, I believe. That's uh, right. yeah. Just talk about, so you say you're 17 when you moved to LA, 
I don't know if you'd ever even been out here before. Uh, no. no. So what no. was life like out here when you were, I, I read Oakwood apartments as one that does. At the Oakwood. <laughs> that's what you do. It's like a rite of passage, although I'm not right. sure if that's what happens anymore, but, but yeah, back then the Oakwoods was kind of like your entry. I mean, that, that was kind of the welcoming committee for a young actor. Right. And it was great. I mean, I was, I was living in Oakwoods. We, we shot at the Warner brothers ranch, which was right up the street. I, I bought like a used Toyota Celica, which at the time was like, you know, might as well have been a Bentley to me. Yeah. I was living the dream. I mean, it was it was everything I could have possibly wanted. And and I do really remember, luckily, a lot of the time telling myself to appreciate it, telling myself because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if this is going to be it. And so so luckily, I have wonderfully fond, vivid memories of that time. Now, when that show was axed essentially did you panic and think you know that's it or did you already (laughs) of course you're like well that was it it was a good run i guess i guess it's over (laughs) uh yeah yeah there's a little bit of panic but but like i said i i i was really lucky in the sense that that there was always something you know what i mean it wasn't like i'm you know locking down giant giant movies but but there was always enough work to feel like i i might be able to make a living doing this so those first few early films you've talked about, uh, these included Not Another Teen Movie, all the way right through, that was in 2001, right through Cellular, 2004. That was your, I think, your first lead. I'm not saying that those are the ones you were referring to, but you have said that <laughs> of your early film roles, a lot of them were, quote, uh, really terrible, close quote, and that quote, just because you're the lead in a movie, that doesn't mean you have a career, close quote. So you seemed like you were, you know, like probably a lot of actors who you were maybe not totally satisfied with the opportunities you were getting to show what you can do. And I wonder if you can just talk about that portion of the career before things really got I think probably onto a different plane with the Fantastic Four commitment. Sure. Well, I mean, it's it's tricky. I bet if you look at most acting careers, they they have that kind of spotty beginning. Um, it's rare that someone can come out and right out of the gate just start knocking home runs. And so again, in the beginning, you don't have much sense of um, consequence or risk. You know, you're just so happy to be there. There's no part of your brain that says, "I'm not going to say no to this job." This is a job. It's a movie. Right. It's opposite so and so. And so you you're just really happy to be there. And but you also learn early on. You develop a an appetite for, or at least a, a kind of um, understanding of what disappointment feels like. You know, this kind of hope and optimism, and then you see the final product and you say, "Okay, well, maybe it's back to the drawing board." <laughs> um, and by the way, for you, that would literally, when you've thought about at different points in your life about not not continuing acting, which I'll ask sure. you about more, but it was almost literally back to the drawing board. I'd heard because you had wanted to be in. At one point, a, a Disney animator, is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was always the original plan. You know, when I was younger, I, I still to this day have a very deep love of animation and all things Disney. And I mean, especially what Pixar is doing right now. I remember, you know, in, in my youth, it was when Beauty and the Beast was coming out, when they were first kind of, you know, cross-pollinating and doing these, you know, computer-generated animations. And so much was happening in that world. There was a time, and, and I did grow up, you know, drawing. That was my that was my thing. So I always assumed that would be my career. And and then, like I said, slowly it just kind of shifted into acting. So the first time I think that the idea of a comic book superhero kind of thing ever entered the picture, I believe would have been Fantastic Four, which was also Marvel. I think maybe pre 
I don't know if Kevin, I don't think it was Kevin Feige at that point, was it? You know, it, it was Kevin, it was? but he was still working at Fox, you know, okay. or, or, you know, I think he was working at Marvel, but, but yeah. Marvel had a deal with Fox. So, you know, he, he didn't have the final say, but he was certainly on the job. You know, he was one of the guys that, you know, I really got along with back in, in, in during that, during that movie. So how did that come? I mean, I guess one question I, I have to ask, were you already like kind of a, a ripped guy or was that, did that come as a result of getting Fantastic Four? No, I think I had always been, you know, uh, tried to stay fit. You know, you certainly up the workout regimen when you realize you're going to be playing, you know, a certain type of character. But but yeah, I, I think I had already, you know, in your early 20s, working out just feels like that's a part of, you know, your just lifestyle at that age. But but yeah, I think I, 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 had, I had a good base, I think. So how did that, what must have felt like at the, at the time, just a, the biggest thing by far up to that point, oh, yeah. had it, had that come about? Yeah, that was back, you know, when when the superhero things was just it was kind of I mean, obviously there had been movies like Batman and Superman in the 70s, 80s and 90s. But 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 for the most part, you know, this was right on the heels of the Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire and the X-Men. So so the superhero thing was kind of just taken off. And so uh, to me, it was just oh, that's, you know, you, you try to remember the the moments in your life when you get those phone calls to get a job. And I I'm uh, you know ashamed to admit that I can't always remember getting those calls. But that one, I remember, there was a lot of other personal things. I think I had just been dumped. And so I was just, you know, I, I needed it. I needed a win. And, and, and I remember getting that phone call and just thinking, oh, yes, because it was really a part that I, it was a role that I enjoyed. And, and, and yeah, well, it was a big, it was the best paycheck I had ever gotten. It just, it felt like, you know, it felt like a little bit of a corner had been turned and, and maybe I can parlay this into something else. And so there were two Fantastic Four films that you ended up doing, 2004 and 2007. And you've talked about the fact that I think it was in the course of that period that maybe specifically on a, on a press tour for the second of the two, that you began to experience something that I think you had not experienced up to that point. And I wonder if you can just share what happened and, and how you react. I mean, it seems like it would have, would have been a, a disconcerting thing to have happen. Sure. Meaning, meaning like in, in well, regards to anxiety and, and yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess again, you know, in the beginning, you're just kind of happy to be there and, and it's this consequence free game because you're, you're young and any job is a good job. Any, there's no way you can kind of frame anything as a misstep. Then all of a sudden, you know, you have, you, you kind of all, it just comes into focus that you may only get so many shots at this, so many bites at the apple. And all of a sudden what, was once your hobby, this thing you did for nothing, this thing you did for you. You know, I, I would wake up on a weekend and just, you know, do scenes in my room. It was just a joy. All of a sudden becomes your job. And when it becomes your job, weird egoic strings become attached and, and, and uh, precautions and, and plans. And, and all of a sudden it, it starts to feel a bit heavier. And, and yeah, and anxiety comes with that because it was also during the proliferation of the internet age where all of a sudden you can read people's reactions online and, and, and all of a sudden your egoic story, your narrative becomes entangled with what was once just this pure little ball of joy. Um, and, and yeah, it manifested as anxiety and, and a little stress. And, uh, and, you know, I've gotten a lot better with it. But at the time, it's hard to separate. It's hard to know if the path you're taking is the wrong one. Because the way I'm feeling isn't healthy. And is this going to be cyclical? And do I need to wake up and remove myself from this? Or is this something that actually is educational and that will happen regardless of uh, circumstance and environment? And it's meant for me to, to figure out, you know, how to manage. And it seems like 
there might have been similar frustrations that could have compounded that from from what I've read. And correct me if any of these things are wrong, but I mean, it seems like some of the early films in which you were actually outstanding, like Sunshine with for Danny Boyle, 2007, same year as that second Fantastic Four film, kind of escaped the Came radar out. of a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, you at one point had said, quote, I'd have a different career if people saw that, close quote, which I... <laughs> nobody's I, nobody sees my good movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a tricky thing, you know, because it really comes down to, you know, who what people see and, and uh, how you're perceived. And, uh, and there was a period of time where you start thinking, man, I just... I can't make a good movie. I, I don't know what it is. And, you know, sometimes I was not great in those movies. And sometimes you feel like, well, I was actually OK. But, man, the movie stunk up the place. And and there was a period of time where <laughs> you can look at my IMDb page. Seems like I just couldn't break the cycle. And uh, and you just think, OK, well, I, again, like I said earlier, I wonder how many chances I'm going to get at this. Um, and, and, and there were a few that got away as well, right? I mean, there were you were pretty close from what I've gathered to parts Gone Baby Gone, Milk, uh, Elizabethtown. These are all around the same time, right? Sure. Yeah. You know, as a close one was Fracture. Remember Fracture with of Ryan course. Gosling? Yeah. Oh, man. I, I, I honestly have never had a better audition in my life. I hate auditioning. I despise it. I think, I think, my, I think most actors do. But, but I, I, you know, I got all of that one, knocked it right out. And it was so great. And I had such a great rapport with the director and really felt like it was coming my way. And Anthony Hopkins was already attached. And you really think, okay, this is another one of those moments where I can... I might be able to make a turn a corner um, and then to lose that one. And obviously, Brian is if you're going to lose to someone, lose to Ryan. But it, it's, it just was one of those things where you think, man, man, this is uh, this is tough. This was all sort of the climate in which along comes an offer, as I understand it, or outreach, maybe as early as 2010 from Marvel again, which had been a place again you'd had a number of years of work with and. In fact, well, the way, again, please stop me if any of this is wrong, but mm -hmm. the way that I've read, we had Kevin Feige on this podcast a few months ago, and I've gone back and reread some of that stuff. And it seems like they initially weren't even going to look at you for this part yeah. because, all right, you're that guy for, for, for us. We can't imagine you being somebody else. And then I, uh, I, I'd read that Sunshine and another film you did in 2008, a period film, The Loss of a Teardrop Diamond, sort of made them think, oh, well, maybe he can do a period piece well, and we can think about him for that. And then the great quote that I found from Feige was, quote, we thought, okay, well, he's that character. Let's keep looking. And as we continued not finding people, we went back to the initial list, and that brought us back to Chris. And I thought, well, Patrick Stewart played Jean-Luc Picard and Charles Xavier. Harrison Ford played Han Solo and Indiana Jones. Who cares, close yeah. quote. So yeah. from your end of things, what was the first indication that they were at least interested in you for this additional this guy captain america uh i was i was doing a movie in houston called puncture one that i actually love dearly um and i had just left la where i had auditioned uh for this movie called what's your number with anna ferris so i was in houston uh, working on this film and they called and said well this movie what's your number it's kind of between you and john krasinski but it's okay i think john krasinski is going to do this movie captain america and i remember saying they're doing captain america why, why the hell haven't i haven't even heard about this what the hell guys and they said well they you know you've done marvel and i said okay that's fair that's fair 
So I continued working in Houston on this film, and it was the first time I actually, I've, I've spoken to this, I kind of started having little mini panic attacks on set, you know, and, and I, they're, they're low-grade panic attacks because I've, I've had a lot of discussions about this with other people, and it does sound like other people have far more crippling experiences. But they were enough to, to throw me a bit and enough to make me question, like I said earlier, if I was on the right path. And, and you know, sometimes it's, it takes a little bit of a nightmare to wake you up. And I really started to think, I'm not sure if this is the right thing for me. I'm not sure if I'm feeling as healthy as I should be feeling. So I, I, I got the call uh, from my team saying, well, the good news is you got what's your number. You know, and I was like, oh, great. And they said, all right, more good news. The other thing looks like it's not going to work out with uh, Krasinski for uh, Captain America. And they want you to come in and audition. And I said, oh, OK, that's great. That's great. And it wasn't an audition. They wanted me to come and test, which is, you know, the kind of. For those who don't know, it's kind of like the, the final stages of auditioning where they, they draw up a contract and they figure out what your deal would be. And, and I said, OK, great. And I hung up and I kind of thought about it. And I really, for some reason, looked at it as this is the uh, this is the temptation. This is it. This is the fork in the road. And, and I really want to kind of wake up to my life and take control of it. And I think this is where you say no. So I called my team back and I said, listen, thank them very much, but I think I'm going to say no thanks. And my team said, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Why? And I said, I'm just not, I'm not there. So they said, okay. And then they called back again and they said, well, you know, Kevin really would love you to come in. And they, they, they tweaked the, the test deal a little bit and they said, what about this and this? And, and I said, again, thank you, but I, I'm really okay. No, thanks. And we wrapped the movie in Houston and I was driving back from Houston to L.A., and my team called and said, well, Kevin wants you, they just want you to come down to Marvel. They just want you to come down. And, and that's where they do the, the whole, you know, show. And they, they, they walk you through the, the different departments and they get you all jazzed. And, you know, it's, it's their pitch. It's their sell. And I said, look, I'm not going to do this thing. I don't want to burn bridges and be rude, but I'm not going to do it. And they said, OK, we know, we know. They just want you to come. And I said, OK. So I got back to L.A. and I went down there and I met Joe Johnston and I talked with Kevin and they show you the whole thing. And it looked real cool, you know, and they got your photo in the, in the pictures and it was a Friday and I left Marvel and I said, you know, I, I've said no to this a couple of times and I woke up feeling pretty good. I'm going to stick to my guns. I called my team and I said, listen, I, I'm passing. Thank them. But but no, thanks. And I'm sure leaving a lot of a lot of money on the table, a lot of your oh, team yeah, couldn't yeah. have been couldn't have been happy oh, about this. They, they didn't <laughs> understand it. They were like, this kid's a head case, man. I don't know. Well, <laughs> but, well, this is what this is what you fight for. What are you doing? Right. But then they called back and they said, well, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, man. We told them you said no, and they're just offering it to you. It's yours if you want it. No audition, <laughs> no test. It's yours. You have the weekend to think about it. And I said, oh, my God, what is going on? What, 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 what does this mean? And so I spoke to a few people. I took the weekend and, you know, I went to a few different therapists. I had never really been to therapy before and just, you know, talked to a few different people. And was, was that because you felt that if you said yes – you knew what would come with this role in terms of just com what if you thought you were if you were getting panic attacks from the level of pressure and fame and everything prior to this, it was going to be a whole new universe. Literally. Exactly. And, and, and truly, it, it, I, I couldn't unknow what I know. And, you know, it's one thing to kind of fall into a circumstance because you were unaware. It's another thing to, to knowingly put yourself in that position. And there's no one else to blame. And, and, and my suffering would be my own. And, and that, that, that was too much to, to cope with at the time. And again, I thought, I thought it was the noble choice. I thought it was like the empowering choice. And, and, and I had a lot of people just say to me, Chris, it, uh, I, they, they understood where I was coming from, but they said it sounded like I was making decisions based on fear, which is not untrue. Uh, and they said, you can't do that. You just, you can't live life that way. Um, even though I know how you're trying to frame it, this is because you're scared. And I think this might be the thing, the exact thing that you 
should throw yourself into. And it really just kind of clicked and it really did start to make sense to me that way. And so, uh, I said, yeah, I said, okay. And, and I think that's why the whole first movie, you know, it was kind of like my hair was on fire. You're so scared. Just like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. And please don't backfire. Please don't blow up in my face. And, uh, and not, not only did it not, it's, it, it was the best decision I've ever made. And I really owe that to Kevin Feige for being persistent and, and helping me avoid making a giant mistake. Is it true that, that Downey was sort of a closer on this? Yeah, well, we had the same agent at the time. And so he, you know, made a call and, and you know, he, he, I knew where they wanted to go. And, you know, that's part of the, the initial deal, not just for Captain America, for, you know, Avengers movies. And, and, and that was daunting. And, and just hearing him kind of give you that little nudge of uh, encouragement and uh, it just just made me feel a little bit more like I was part of the gang and, and not so intimidated. And yeah, I mean, I guess it was a double edged sword. And on the one hand, it makes you feel very welcome. But on the other hand, you just think, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I got to stand next to this guy. I mean, he's he's <laughs> he's crushing this role. I, you know, I don't want to be the weak link here. But but again, yeah, it, it was a very it was a very nice, comforting thing to hear that he was in my corner. So let's uh, come back to what we were talking about a moment ago, Puncture, which you still had to finish and ended up being one of the best performances I think you've given. And uh, I know you've said, yeah, yeah, it's uh, just terrific. And this was directed by the Casson brothers. I believe they're brothers, uh, Adam and Mark. Just if anyone hasn't seen it yet, the little log line, I suppose. um, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's my dog now. (laughs) Um, So uh, Mike Weiss was a real person, a Houston lawyer and also an addict who took on sort of a a healthcare conspiracy that seemed Mm -hmm. to be keeping safer needles from getting in the hands of healthcare professionals. You made this movie super low budget, just 25 days versus months on some of these bigger movies you've done. And Roger Ebert's review called you, quote, electrifying in the role, close quote. There were all kinds of things like that. But it looks like it played in just, I remember seeing it, I think, at Tribeca and was out terrific but it then subsequently goes and plays in maybe a total of five theaters or something if, if that yeah, yeah yeah it really came and went yeah so how tough is that to know again i guess similar to let's say sunshine that some of the you know if, if people could only see this you know yeah, what could happen yeah you know, I, I vacillate sometimes between that, that frustration and then also kind of trying to recalibrate and remember that that's not the reason we do this. You know, I think if you start letting the tail wag the dog, it's, it, it can corrupt the experience. So, so you try to, I, I think those thoughts are, you know, when you're struggling and when things aren't going well, it's, it's unavoidable to not think about the reasons why things aren't the way you want them to be. Um, luckily, you know, things have been a little more stable for me as of late. So I guess you don't dwell so much on those things. And obviously, you know, you, you can't help but think, man, it's, it's a shame that this work that you, you know, pour so much of yourself into may not be experienced by other people. And, but, but, you know, like I said, I, I spend less time feeding that part of the narrative because I actually don't think it's healthy. Yeah. And it's, and it's worked out uh, nicely in the, in the end. Uh, but, yeah. but, you know, but everyone go see Puncture. Yeah, go see. <laughs> I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. Uh, they should. It's got to be. It's okay. My so, mom will send you VHSs. <laughs> so uh, meanwhile, you finish that, you go back, and now it's time to actually embark on what, what, what ended up being an eight-year journey as mm. Steve Rogers slash Captain America. And I want to ask you just, you know, about the actual process of acting in movies of that 
size in terms of just the machinery of it all and the budget and everything, which I know you'd had a taste of it with particularly the Fantastic Four movies. But I mean, is it harder to hold on to your characterization of a of a guy, especially a guy who's very internal and doesn't show a lot of emotion like the captain when you've got so much going on around you, sometimes just a couple of lines a day. I mean, it's just, it's Mm. such a different process, I would think, than the more intimate movies that you had really excelled in. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the size and scale of scope of, of, of movies like that can, can make things a bit tedious, but, but I think you, you get a lot of practice of that on movie sets in general, even the smaller movies, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. So I think that muscle has been properly exercised at that point. I think the biggest challenge at, at that level for movies like that is knowing that there's a baked in the cake expectation. You know, this is not some new character. There's this pressure uh, based on what people want to see out of the role, as opposed to it being, you know, fresh snow where you get to make the tracks. There, there's there's an idea in a lot of people's heads and you don't want to disappoint, which is, again, it's, it's a tricky posture because you you don't want to cut your cloth according to that expectation. Um, you know, I think the best work comes from the kind of, you know, putting blinders on and just being, you know, raw, naked and honest and, and trusting your director to be able to cut together a good performance. But but you, you can't separate it. At least I couldn't at that time. You know, in the early days, you can't not <laughs> think about how it's going to be received. But but it, it, to be honest, it was nice even having uh, Chris Hemsworth around because he was going through it, too. I mean, at the time, Downey's Downey and Scarlet, Scarlet and Ruffalo, even Renner at the time was crushing it, too. Hemsworth and I were, were very new and we also had the standalones. And so uh, I think we, we shared in our anxiety and at least that made it a little bit a little bit more comforting. Um, but yeah, it's 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 also tricky playing a character that is a little more internal, a little more taciturn. You know, he doesn't he doesn't get the flash. He doesn't get the the, the joke, the jokes, rather. He probably doesn't get the joke either. Uh, but <laughs> but, you know, that that's tricky. But again, I, I, I developed a, a love for the role pretty early on. And so it's it's. That's really neat. You know, I understand that that perspective, but but I I I, I fell in love with with Steve Rogers pretty quick. So that first one goes out to the world in 2011, and I wondered, you know, obviously your life must have changed quite significantly. You're the face of a of a a huge movie, a guy who on screen appears to be a, a superhero that, which, you know, comes with its own effect on fans. Was it the effect that you had kind of been anxious it would be, or was it different? You know, to be honest, uh, all the things that I was uh, fearing never really, never really came to fruition. You know what I mean? You, you, you never really meet tomorrow. You know, you, your, your fears and, and uh, anxieties are always these things that are looming in the future. But all that ever happens is tomorrow becomes today. And, and, and when you start to kind of manage how to cope with today, that anxiety melts, melts a little bit. So, so, uh, and again, I'm sure it helped that I had such a supportive group around me. I'm sure it helped that the movies were well received. I'm sure there's a lot of factors here that contributed to the easing of anxiety and the growing with the experience, but, but, but yeah, it, it, it didn't go the way my brain was fearing. And you adapted to the new, normal was it could you have fun with it i mean i mean there's yeah. uh yeah i mean it's easy to have fun with it when they're well received you know yeah. it's it's a real it's 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 only a try you know it's like winning 
changes everything. They, they say that expression <laughs> yeah. in sports all the time. You know what I mean? Like if it's going well, hey, you know what I mean? All, all those potential. And again, it, 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 it might have been more challenging if uh, even if things were going well, if the experience of the movies was lousy. But the experience, you know, was just as good as the reception because people at Marvel are wonderful and the other actors are fantastic. And I never felt uh, burdened by having to revisit the role. I couldn't wait to revisit the role. And I mean, honestly, it's, it really was an embarrassment of riches. I can't, I can't speak enough about how well that whole chapter of my life worked out because it just, it was so satisfying and really, really educational. You know, I think I grew a lot during the process. So just, I want to just note for you, I think it was nine movies, uh, First Avenger in 2011, Avengers 2012, Winter Soldier 2014, Age of Ultron, Avengers Age of Ultron 2015, Civil War 2016, Avengers Infinity War 2018, and Avengers Endgame 2019. They were all successful, as was the entire series in a way that has now, we we can say, because we've seen the whole span of it, just unprecedented success commercially in the history of Hollywood. There's nothing like every single one of them was a top top box office draw. I wondered from seeing it from the inside to what you most attribute that. Is there is there one thing that you can pinpoint? I mean, there's a look, it's it, it as much as I'd love to say that it's the actors that are also wonderful in their roles. I've seen plenty of movies at this caliber with wonderful actors and you know, you'd love to attribute it to just the director, but I've also seen wonderful directors, you know, make movies like this that kind of miss. I really think it has to come down to Marvel. You know, there's something in, uh, and I guess that just, I guess the buck stops with Kevin Feige, doesn't it? I mean, it must, because it's, it'd be one thing if there was a few good Marvel movies, but then a few stinkers, or it'd be one thing if every other shop in town was making the hits as effortlessly as Marvel was, but it's just not happening that way. And, and I guess when you start to collect the data, and, and and try to figure out what's the common denominator, I, I, I really think it must be Kevin Feige. I mean, that's the, he, he, he doesn't let things be bad. So, so I mean, between you and me, it's me. I'm taking the credit. <laughs> it's me. It's me. I'm the reason. Uh, but, but, yeah, no, it's, it's got to be Kevin Feige. Last two quick things on that chapter of your life. I want to ask you if there was, for you, a most memorable scene or sequence. Uh, I know from just gauging from other moviegoers, it seems like there are things like, of course, that helicopter sequence where your workouts are on full display uh, <laughs> and well, uh, things like that. But for you, was sure. there one? Yeah, well, the Russos are real, real, real cinephiles and, and, and they, they have such uh, uh, knowledge and, and love for certain you know scenes in certain movies. And, and you can tell when they get excited about certain moments that they want to make iconic they were really excited about that first elevator fight scene in, in Winter Soldier. And you, you could tell that they wanted it to be special. And as a result, that's one of one of my favorite fight sequences. And the moment with the helicopter, you know, they, they said, listen, this moment, they had a shot in their mind. They had a, you know, position posture in their mind. And you can see when they're excited that you're just, you know, a piece of the puzzle in, in, in their creative vision. And then, you know, beyond that, I, I like everything from Endgame was really special to me because this, you know, my, my headspace was very much in the reflective, grateful part of it and just, just really trying to 
you know, you almost feel like you're living in a memory. You feel like uh, this is, it's almost like the moment's already passed. So you're really just trying to soak it in and, and just uh, appreciate what this journey has been like. And then, and, and like I said, in, in Endgame, there are just so many great moments. I love scenes with Downey. I love seeing the evolution of those two characters. And they usually give Cap great, you know, motivational speeches and things like that. So any of those scenes where, where there's kind of the, all of us together and it just kind of is like a, a real reflective special moment. Well, you sort of lead in perfectly to the second of those, of those last two, which is that, and maybe this is another part along with, with Feige of what made these so great, but these are, these were not actors. You or the others that are the principal guys in this and gals who are just there. Cause you're, you're pretty. I mean, these are how many of these guys between, Samuel L. Jackson and now Scarlett and Downey and Ruffalo, so many Oscar nominated actors. Oscar but, nominees, yeah. Yeah. And and then you get Redford at, at a certain point, you're comes I know. in. Oh, God. So, <laughs> so from that sense, I mean, I think it, it, it you know, contrary to some people's belief that <laughs> comic books or superhero movies are, are pure fluff, I would think that it was a, a valuable acting opportunity as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a testament to those movies based on the caliber that that they attract. I mean, listen, big budget movies with big paychecks are always available, and some of these actors don't touch them. And right. to 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 get the people they get at Marvel shows what goes into it that it is more than just you know a theme park ride. It really, really is. You know, we we may be a little bit too accustomed to to, to the structure now, and so I think it's easy to kind of sweep it into the same category as, as other films of, the, of that nature. But, but I really do think they stand apart. And, and uh, like, like we were just saying, the, 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 the caliber of talent they attract is a testament to that. I think it's a testament to, to you that during the in between these movies, which were almost every year, I think in pretty much the ones that you were a part of and all the promotional obligations and everything else, you're still taking your off time and not going to Hawaii, but doing other interesting stuff. And so I want to just mention a few of these, if you can just share, sure. you know, a memory or a takeaway, the main takeaway. Let's start with the hitman that you played opposite Michael Shannon in the Iceman. I think a role that was at one point going to be James Franco, you come in and that's a, that's an underappreciated kind of gem of a movie. Yeah. It's another one that I wish more people <laughs> saw. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, I was friends with the director, Ariel. Um, and, and he called me and just said, Hey, listen, you know, I'm starting this movie in a week or whatever it was. And, uh, and he said, James, James Franco was going to play this role and he just dropped out and based on the bond company and the, you know, the, the insurance, you know, the, the, we, we need an actor of a certain caliber to make the numbers work. Um, can, can you take this role? And I said, listen, if you let me do whatever I want with it, yeah, absolutely. Michael Shannon was, you know, such a big fan of his and all my scenes are with him. And, and it was a quick role. You know, I was in and out in a week or something like that. And it just felt, I love those roles. I love those kind of supporting secondary things where you get to come in and, and have some flavor. Cause again, coming off the cat movies where you kind of feel like the center cog in the wheel, it's, it's nice to kind of get a little bit of uh, sass. Um, yes. So yeah, so that, that was just uh, kind of a no brainer. Why not? So that was 2012 during your break, 2013, you Years before the rest of the world caught up to him, we're working with Bong Joon-ho oh, on yeah. Snowpiercer, which is a very great dystopian thriller that's now been brought back to life as a TV program. Mm. Just any thoughts on on that one? Yeah, because oh, I, I had seen, you know, I was at a point in my career where I just, 
again, it's easy to be a little frustrated when you sign on for a movie and you work really hard on it and then you see the final product and it's so different than what you thought it was going to be that that can really be uh, heartbreaking. And and I just kind of made a decision. I, I, only good directors, only good directors, whether I identify with the project, whether I identify with the role, only good directors because that's, that's how you get a good story. It's how you get a good movie. And director Bong is obviously, you know, one of the best ones working. And I, I love Memories of Murder and I love Mother and his, his films were so fantastic. To be really honest, when I read the script, I was a little, I didn't quite get it. It, it, was, it was a little bit, uh, I mean, it was a really uh, uh, a wild story. And, um, and even meeting with him, you know, it's, uh, you kind of just have to trust his vision. It, it wasn't, you know, his English isn't great. So, you know, trying to really dig in and dissect the role took time. And you really just kind of say, you know what, I, I'm going to hitch my wagon to yours because I actually think you got something special going on. And if you're going to trust me to do this, I'm going to trust you to do this. And, and uh, yeah, it, it's an, another just great decision. I was so happy that, that I chose to do that because, uh he, he directs in a really wild way. He, he, he actually, he shoots his edit, if that makes sense. Meaning most times in a movie, you know, you, you, if you have one scene, you'll shoot the entire scene from, you know, 10 angles. You have a master, you have a two shot, a single, a tight single, all these things. And then later on, you know, an editor will piece the story together. Director Bong will storyboard the scene. And, you know, if, if the scene starts in a master, you'll get about two lines into the scene. And he says, cut. And you say, cut, we're not going to do the whole scene. He says, no, don't need it. And, and, you know, he, he, so, so it's, it's really a double-edged sword in terms of the information you have as an actor, you know, exactly what portion of your performance will be seen. And, and you know, exactly what, you know, portion of your performance is not on film anywhere. You know, you could give his footage to 10 editors, you're going to have the same movie, which is again, wonderfully marvelously brave and and the conviction that he has and again his movies are phenomenal so it's a testament to his level of storytelling but uh but while making it you know a little uh nerve-wracking i had yeah. never experienced that before but again it, it it worked out better than i could have hoped in 2017 during your or i guess it might have been even the year before during your break but comes out in 2017 gifted which is another one that i know is very special to you and I want to ask you to share why. Yeah. Well, I like that just for me personally, I like stories where characters are affected by love. I know that seems like you know, a little, a little corny and bit of a platitude, but, but I, I, I have wonderful relationships in my life with, with people. And I, I've, I had never done a movie where I got to kind of be bonded with a child. I think there's a real wisdom and innocence in life to children. And I, I love when you have a character who's a bit more of an ape, who is maybe out of touch with those emotions and how a kid can kind of unlock some of those doors. Um, it was a very well-written script, and I loved Mark Webb. 500 Days of Summer was one of my favorite movies, and it was set up at Searchlight, which is also a very uh, director-friendly place to make a film. You know, they really... It, it didn't feel to me that it would be reduced to, you know, a TV movie or something. You know, it felt like they, they understood. We all knew what we wanted it to be. And, and then he started getting great talent involved. And again, it just kind of... I had a great conversation with Mark, and I just said, you know what, that's another great director that I'm just going to hitch my wagon to. So in 2018, I had the good fortune of seeing you on Broadway in a revival of Kenny Lonergan's 2001 play, which is called Lobby Hero. You play a cop who, in a way, was uh, sort of the embodiment of what is now called toxic masculinity, I think would be oh, fair yeah. to say. Oh, um, yeah. But I mean, for you to, to A, go back to theater, but to be on Broadway for 
first time and to get not just to be there, but let me just quote back from a guy who is happy to tell you people when he doesn't like what they're doing. <laughs> ben Brantley at the New York Times. Yeah. Called it, oh, quote, he was the one. He was the one that I was terrified of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> quote, a terrific Broadway debut, close quote by Chris Evans. And from there, it, it goes on with many others like that. Just um, eight shows a week on Broadway with Top, top folks. I knew I know you knew Michael Sarah from uh, Scott Pilgrim, I think. Sure. And just uh, but just uh, Bell Pally, the whole group was it was a very interesting thing for an audience. What was it like to experience for you? A little terrifying. You know, I think I, I, I miss theater not only because it's where I began, but uh, but I really wanted to remember I, I wanted to just try a different approach to what I do. And um, there's something about the repetition of rehearsal. You know, a lot of times in film, you don't get rehearsal. It's just not something you're afforded. And and acting is such a strange thing. There's, you know, it's, it, it can never quite be what reality is because in reality, you have a subtext that is creating new narratives or a new story in your mind as things are unfolding. And obviously, in, in acting, you have a script. So, so the idea of making the percentage of your mind that's aware of the next line that's coming as minimal as possible and, and, and really allowing the majority of your consciousness to surrender to listening uh, was a really attractive approach to, to what I've been doing for, you know, 10, 15 years. And, and I think one of the ways to, to kind of unlock that is through the repetition that theater affords. You know, you do these lines so much, these lines become so embedded. This blueprint is so there, I can kind of untether a little bit and let go of the dock and really, really listen and kind of have this new experience with the same dialogue every night because I've surrendered a little bit to it. So, so I was excited to give it a shot, but, but like I said earlier, completely terrified every single day because Look, theater is a very lauded environment. You know, it's 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 I, and I understand why the, some people may frown at a, a movie actor just kind of butting in and saying, oh, just because I make movies, I'm going to take this role from someone who might deserve it, which was a shame because, like I said, I felt like a theater kid. I spent yeah. my entire life doing theater. But but I but I understood why some people may feel that way. So there was a little bit added pressure to make sure you want to at least feel like you belong. Well, it was great. And uh, 2019, I don't want to gloss over, was uh, a little movie called Knives Out, which did pretty yeah, well at the yeah. box office. Uh, you were playing Jamie Lee Curtis's son in this crazy family and just working. I think probably the draw for you was Ryan Johnson, the oh, script yeah. and the director. Right? Uh, he's got his own weird way of working, from what I understand, like very few takes. And right. So just uh, did you ever imagine that would go over as well as it did? Uh, you know, I, again, I trusted Ryan and I trusted the cast, uh, and the script was so good. The script was fantastic. And, and he's a very precise director. He's like Edgar Wright. They know exactly what they want and when they get it, they can move on, you know? So again, you might only do two, two takes and he's like, okay, I'm good. If you want to do another one, you can. And you think you're good. That's it. <laughs> oh God. I don't know. I don't know. And then you get a little nervous while you're making it. But uh, yeah, that, that was one of those scripts I read. And, and just I remember when I spoke with Ryan, I basically just I think I said, please, a bunch, just please, <laughs> please, 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 please. I know I can do this. I know this may not be how I'm seen, but I promise you, I, I, I you know, some scripts you read and, you know, you get to your your dialogue and and, and it's it's so well written and you get so many ideas right away. You almost kind of stand up and start running the lines. You know what right. I mean? And, and, and I just kind of started doing the scenes on my own. And I was just like, man, I got I got to do whatever I can to get this movie. 
All right. Well, this brings us to 2020 and something that I've so enjoyed watching. It's uh, still rolling out on the platform, Apple TV Plus, but an eight part limited series defending Jacob on which you star as this husband, father and assistant DA whose family gets wrapped up in one of the cases that he's initially involved with. You also were an executive producer on this, and it's uh, it's really seems to be going over tremendously. And I wonder how it first even crossed the radar. Uh, it was actually when I was doing the the show, when I was doing Lobby here in New York, uh, my, my team sent me the pilot. Uh, and, and that's the tricky thing with those shows. You only get to see a pilot. And they say there's going to be eight episodes, but you don't know what those eight episodes are right. going to be like. So so it's a bit of a leap of faith. And, and I read the pilot. I liked the role. And I met with uh, Mark, Mark uh, Bombach and uh, Morton. And they, they just had such a clear vision. Uh, they're both fathers of, of children around the same age, so you feel a lot of personal passion from them. But again, it was a little intimidating because you, 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 you don't have all the information. So it took me a couple meetings with them. For, you know, I had a bunch of questions, and we went back and forth two or three times. And eventually it got to a point where you just think, you know, I, I just like these people. You know, at the end of the day, I got to go and get in this sandbox every day with some people and do I trust them? And, and, and if, if I make a mess and, you know, take these risks, are these the people I want to do it with? And again, another another decision that I'm really proud of because I, I absolutely love the series and, and I love the role and I love the people and the experience. And I would work with every single one of those people again in a heartbeat. Had you, I'm trying to think, had you played a father before on screen? I think, you know, I did a movie called Red Sea Diving Resort where I had a daughter, but it's, you know, they, they pay one scene to it. Um, yeah. You know, and there's, there's Gifted where I have a, a right, niece. But, yeah. but no, the, the, the kind of domestic conventional father as, as you would normally see it. No, no, not, not, not that way. And in terms of the structure of a limited series, which I don't think you have been a part mm-hmm. of one before, yeah. uh, that is where the best stuff on TV seems to be at the moment right yeah. now to me. Structurally, though, for an actor, how does that work? Are you shooting episode by episode? Are you shooting in sequence? Or is it all? Is it episode seven and then two and then three? And yeah. just uh, how do you make that work? It's out of sequence, which is really the most challenging part of it. It's, it's ostensibly yeah. an eight-hour movie, you know. Yeah. So in the morning, you might shoot something from, from episode one, and in the afternoon might be episode eight. So you have a lot of information, a giant arc that you have to house in your mind. But, but that's, that's kind of what I love about not only the TV structure, but a limited series specifically. The, 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 the way these things are consumed are almost akin to the way we consume literature. It's kind of like in chapters, and you get to revisit it. And, you know, how quickly does it suck you back in? How much are you thinking it, about it in between those chapters? And and it really allows for things to um, to breathe. You know, if, if they had made Defending Jacob 20 years ago, it would have been, a, it would have been an hour and 20-minute movie. It would have been all engine. It would have been all plot. And it would have been entertaining. But but there might not have been as much depth uh, to, to the characters and to the moments. And that's one of the things that I'm actually, as an actor, enjoying more these days is, is playing with the power of the silence, you know, I mean, as actors, I think it's easy to kind of believe the fallacy that you are your lines. You know what I mean? Like you read the words that you say and you think that's where you extrapolate a character from. But but in truth, you know, there's there's incredible power and control in the space between in the subtext that you can convey. And 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 with a limited series, that's that's what they lean into. You know, they, they want these kind of drawn out moments to to allow for texture and contours um, and subtext. And, and that's that's a really exciting thing as an actor. I understand that 
the series, I don't know if all of it, but a lot of it was shot in the Boston area, which again oh, is yeah. where you come from. And just what that was like, and especially, I mean, people got a real kick out of seeing that it enabled you to attend your high school reunion, I think it was, yeah. and that you wore <laughs> yeah. the hello, my name is name tag as well. It just, well, I wasn't um, <laughs> not going to, you know, it's, it's so funny. I'm like, well, what kind of asshole would I be to be like, no, I don't need it. You know, <laughs> you, know what I mean? you gotta do it. <laughs> well, uh, and you, but it's nice because you actually still at least part-time live around Boston, right? Oh yeah. I live, you know, 20 minutes from my old high school. Yeah. I, I I've lived there for about 10 years now. And, uh, you know, I, I got, nothing I got nothing against LA and but it's not it's just not where I feel my best it's not where I consider home and uh I just like the seasons I like everything about the east coast Massachusetts specifically so yeah it it was it was a real luxury to be able to get up and drive 20 minutes and be at work and then be able to sleep in my own bed and you know seeing my family on the weekends it was it was great it was like a regular nine to five (laughs) <laughs> All right. So where I hope we can wrap up, and I so appreciate this whole conversation, but having now looked back at everything in a compact period of time, I wonder what, where does it leave your own mind? You know, are you are there things that you have not done yet that you're particularly anxious to do with your career? Are there things that you've done that you want to go back and try to do better? At one point, there was some discussion that you didn't necessarily see a long-term future for yourself, even in acting that you might want to go and do other things. So just where's, what's the outlook today here in May, 2020 pandemic era, (laughs) you know, Corona era. Yeah. I I am pretty, you know, mercurial by nature. And so I I do kind of wake up and have a a new creative appetite every day. and, And I am at a point now where I'm a little more stable, if nothing else, financially. And and that posture does allow for a lot of freedom. Um, so, so you know, I think earlier in everyone's career, when, when you get a movie, you almost have not a defensive posture, but certainly a self-protective one in terms of, you know, you, you, you might have a finite amount of takes. So you want to get at least on film your instinct. And it's, this, it's kind of this protective way of performing. And, and again, that's because in the early part of your career, you don't know where the next vine's coming from. You're trying to hang on to the one you got with dear life. And right. Now I'm at a point now where I have a little bit more uh, room to, to breathe a little bit. And, and so, yeah, on the one hand, sometimes I wake up and, and don't have any appetite to, to make a film. And then other times I, I can't wait to get on set because I have a new strength maybe in, 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 in risk tanking. You know what I mean? There, there's, I, I'm more excited to kind of get to set and take some big swings and, and not be so concerned about will this, you know, end it all for me, you know, and I think that's where the best work comes from, especially on Defending Jacob. I really kind of took some swings and, and made a mess and, 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 you know, you're not quite thinking about consequence or, or, or whether this will impact getting future jobs. And, and I think that's where some of the best work comes from. So to, to, to in summation, yeah, even though I am capricious and am not one of those actors that says all I want to do is make movies forever, but I am someone who is incredibly, incredibly creatively satisfied by what acting offers, incredibly curious by what acting can challenge you with, and, and really excited about finding opportunities to, to feed that appetite. Well, again, thank you so much for doing this and, and keep up the great work. It's a lot of fun to follow you. So thanks. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.